welcome aboard the battleship pretension i'm david Bax. tyler smith is on assignment we have uh, a guest though but we'll get to her in a second we'll get to our uh exciting uh topic and and uh and all the things we have to discuss but first i want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors they look great they sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Uh, uh, I always do guest. If you don't, you've been on the show a few times. I don't know if you know. Uh, I always, when I plug the tweakedaudio.com earbuds, I, I tell the listener what I've been listening to lately on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. And I swore, I told myself I wasn't going to talk about metal again because I've been talking about metal uh, for like six weeks in a row. But you know what? Fuck it. I can't stop listening to this Danish black metal band called Afski and their album that came out last year that I am not, I repeat, not go. You know what? Maybe I will try to say the name of it. It's uh off the drummer Migdod. I don't know what that means. I probably just said something terrible in Danish, but the album is uh, just beautiful and soaring and dark and heavy and scary. And it's so, uh, so cool. Uh, it sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Our guest is, uh, this is, this has become a tradition now. I think this is the third year in a row that uh, our guest for the Sundance Film Festival wrap-up has been Mashable's Angie Han. Angie, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I didn't realize it had been that many years that we've been doing this. Wow. I think, yeah, I think we've done three Sundances and we had done two TIFFs, I think, but then I, we didn't do a TIFF in 2020 because uh, I was not deemed special enough to get to Very tragic. The, uh, press credentials. But um, you know what? It was, I had a nice weekend that weekend. Um, this week, I had a very, very busy week. Uh, not as much as you. You watched uh, every movie under the sun. Um, but uh, uh, I watched a few. We're going we're gonna to zoom through talking about in alphabetical order the movies uh, we missed or we saw at Sundance. Um, but real quick, I wanted to... Uh, how was this for you? This Did you spend as much time as I did pining for you know the uh early morning lines outside of the prospector theater or uh, <laughs> or or uh writing reviews in the cramped upstairs hallway at the double tree hotel or or all of the did you did you flash back to sundance memories did you miss having some fry sauce with your burger at squatters did you have any of these experiences like i did I feel like if your if your most precious memory of in person Sundance is waiting in a long line in the snow, then you and I maybe have different ideas of what we like about Sundance. Because I would not say that that is uh, it's one of those things where you know I'm like 
oh, this, this feels different. And like, sure. Part of me is nostalgic for that. But I also know if I were actually standing in that line, I'd be like, this is horrible. I'd rather be at home on my couch and like comfortable clothing. This year is, yeah, this year was very weird. The virtual, the fact that it was virtual gave me a lot more flexibility in terms of what I could watch. It's just one reason I got away with watching so much more. And of course that meant there was a lot less travel and stuff like that. Uh, but I do, I did miss the in-personness of it. And I feel like there are a few films in particular where you just, where you're just like, oh man, this would have been so fun yeah. to watch with a crowd or like, or even if you didn't like it that much, it would have been so fun to like spill out of the theater afterwards and like ask your friends or, or the people that you're sitting next to like, oh my God, what'd you think? Yeah. Uh, and we didn't get any of that or much less of that this year. I mean, people still obviously talked about it on Twitter or whatnot, but it's not quite the same. Yeah, I couldn't even really bring myself to tweet about the movies that that, that much. I say I'm saving it all for this episode. Um, the number one thing, of course, that I missed from actual Park City Sundance is watching movies with Angie and getting uh, 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 and uh, getting uh, seats saved for me. This is a, a thing I've said multiple times. Angie, you are better at saving seats than anyone I have ever met. It is like a ninja skill that you have. <laughs> you just have to be ruthless about sitting down immediately putting your stuff next to you and then saying to every single person that walks by sorry it's taken and just yeah. not minding when they look upset with you i don't know if i have that uh that fortitude but um yeah i definitely i i, I think part of that like part of what makes the Sundance movies seem so special is that you have to go through a frozen hell to get into them, you know? Um, uh, and then you have to like, after standing in a poorly heated tent for 45 minutes, you have to walk up three flights of stairs uh, to sit in the crowded library uh, screening room in which there are maybe five seats that actually have a good sight line in the entire theater. But something about what you have to earn, I think to see a movie at Sundance is what leads to that Sundance glow. People, overpraising Sundance movies. And I wonder if there'll be less of that this year or if there has been less Sundance glow because uh, it hasn't had that we're all away at winter camp uh, feel. I don't know. I have anecdotally, I feel like heard more people say that this was a kind of a weak slate, whether it's like actually weaker, you know, if it, like if, if this were played normally, whether we would still think that or whether it's because the pandemic meant that different kinds of films were submitted or accepted or, or like, I, I don't know. Maybe I do feel like it changed the fact that it was virtual did change my calculation of like which films I wanted to watch, because yes, obviously absolutely. when you're in person, it's so much more finite of like, oh, well, there's so many films at regular Sundance that I'm just like, well, I'd like to watch it, but look, I'm just realistically not going to make it across town in 15 minutes. So I guess I'm just not watching that. Or there's so many more things where you just kind of have to figure like, uh, you know, what, what's the best, like, do I really want to trek all the way over there to watch this movie? I may not even like whatever. And then watching it virtually, there's just, there was a little bit more of an ability to just be like, you know what? I heard someone said it was good. I'll give it a shot on the flip side though it also makes it so that it's so much easier to just like want to turn off i didn't actually turn off any movies but you know, the temptation sure, enters yeah. your head a lot faster and it is it's, it's harder to keep yourself from getting distracted when it's a movie that you are not maybe loving um the let's get into the movies in a second but the the the, the thing that i that we will get to later that uh uh the main change to my approach to what movies to watch and this has to do with this is the uh, the different purview of how battleship retention uh, require, you know, covers uh, uh, a festival, which is however the fuck we want and how someone like you, who's a professional has to cover the, the festival. But generally at Sundance or at TIFF, I try to avoid seeing movies that already have release dates within the next like month or two. This time I felt 
like eh, this is just if i review a movie now it means i don't have to re- write that review in two weeks i'm saving myself a review in two weeks so there are a couple movies that I, we both watched that will be out very soon yeah uh yeah, but let's I just say that uh, let's just jump in into the movies. Uh, I'll st- we're going alphabetically, so I'm giving I'm giving the start with one of the best movies I saw at Sundance, um, a documentary called All Light Everywhere. This is directed by Theo Anthony, who made a name for himself a couple of years ago with a documentary called Rat Film, which is a film about rats. Uh, not just a clever name. All Light Everywhere has a bit more of a nebulous title. Uh, it's about it's i guess it's about cameras and surveillance and and uh, uh a huge part of it is about police body worn cameras um but really what the movie is about is the uh unreliability of the image we tend to put so much into like well can you know there's that saying the camera doesn't lie and theo anthony uh, in in a very sort of thoughtful and roundabout and often abstracted way uh, kind of points out how um, there's an observer effect, even in a camera that the person operating the camera or in the case of a cop, the person wearing the camera is for all intents and purposes, a part of the camera and it, like consciously or not, they have an effect on what images are, are captured. And, and uh, it's a very, very thoughtful, sometimes kind of uh, scary, uh, very, sometimes very insightful. There's a huge long part. That's uh, just the Baltimore police going through body worn camera training, which is not something that uh, um, uh, we would normally get to get to see. Uh, it's a, it's a very, very good um, thoughtful uh, documentary. Okay, uh, moving on to I, this is a very—I don't know if this is true for you, Angie. This is a very genre-heavy and specifically horror-heavy uh, festival for me, and I wonder if that was—if the slate itself was more genre and horror-heavy. Uh, I don't—I don't know if this was your experience, but um, I watched a lot of horror movies, and uh, most of them were good to great. One of the great ones that I saw—this uh, was an opening night film. Um, Prado Bailey Bond's Censor, which is a movie about, uh, it takes place in the 1980s in Britain, uh, uh, where there were the, the video nasties movies that were like banned, um, or heavily censored. And, uh, uh, the main character is a woman who is a censor. It's her job to spend all day watching, uh, depraved low budget horror films and either banning them or, or requiring cuts before they can be, uh, released. Um, and then one of the films that she sees bears a striking resemblance to uh, her repressed memories of a traumatic event from her childhood. Um, and she thinks this actress might be her long lost sister. And she sort of like delves into this world of, of, of video nasty uh, films to try and find this, this director and, and this actress, but she's also having nightmares. And as the movie goes on, it uh, uh, becomes very difficult to, for her and for the audience to tell the difference between when it, when is, is this a nightmare or is this really happening? Uh, it's a, a very stylistic, very, uh, psychologically scary horror movie. It's, uh, for all of its, for as much of it is, is uh, as much of it is about like gore, the actual gore in the movie, like the actual gore in the video nasties movies is really fakey and cheesy looking kind of intentionally. So, so it's not the, it's, it's a horror movie, but the, the gore part is not what's, scary about it it's the uh losing losing touch with reality part of it uh but let's move on to the act the the opening night film that we both watched uh this is the um the uh the toast of sun of, of sundance i think this was the biggest most expensive acquisition 
Am I right? I haven't really been following. Something like that. It's also it also won a bunch of the Sundance Awards, and it's gotten really great reviews. Yeah, uh, including from me. Um, And that's uh, Sean Hedder's Coda. Uh, I've been talking uh, too much. Why, Why don't you tell me what you thought of Coda? You know, earlier we were talking about how we kind of miss the experience of watching these movies in a theater with other people. And I do feel like, at least in the conversations that I have had, this movie got cited more than any others. I was just like, oh, this would have killed it at, at like during opening night if it actually played in Sundance in a big theater crowded with people because it is such a crowd pleaser. And mm-hmm. I mean that is in like the most complimentary way possible. So it's a story about this uh, teenage girl who is the only hearing member of a deaf family. And then in her senior year of high school, she decides that she wants to pursue music and that causes some tension with her family and whatnot. And it is just, it is so warm and so funny. There was lots of, there are lots of times where I was just, you know, bent over laughing, but it's also very, uh, you know, it's, it's also very moving, very heartwarming. It's, and I know sometimes that that combination can seem a little bit manipulative, like the, Oh, I laughed, I cried, but at the end of it all, it didn't really mean anything. And I don't know how other people will feel about it, but to me, it just felt like all of those were earned that it's because it is so grounded in the specifics of this family, which is a family, which is a type of family. We don't get to see that often in mainstream cinema, a deaf family and this film. And I feel like there was going in, I was a little bit worried that like, you know, Oh, okay. Okay, so it's a movie about a deaf family, but it's going to focus on the one hearing member of this family. Like, I I wasn't so sure about how they're going to do that. And like, I don't feel like I'm necessarily the person to speak to that. But at least in my experience, one of the things I really appreciated about it is how much she really made each character of like a rich, fully realized person in themselves and how what a good eye she had for the dynamics between the members of this family and also the family's dynamics with the um, hearing world, the outside world. So yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Uh, I had the same the, the, the same thought about I wish you know I wish I could have seen this of the crowd because the the movie that I thought of another movie I saw at Sundance a couple of years ago uh, was Blinded by the Light because uh, that's another movie that I left the theater you know wiping tears out of my eyes and I uh, uh, I was a mess at the end of Coda uh, as well but you know these things the 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 sort of coming of age emotional tearjerker formula. You know, you, 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 you dock points maybe for it being formulaic, but if you have a point of view and you're honest, like you were saying um, uh, about treating the characters with respect and, uh, um, uh, and, and, and caring about them and having compassion, then there's no reason. There's a reason formulas work. And as long as you're not cynical about it, and I don't think Coda is a cynical movie. Um, it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an example in, in motion of how, of how formulas work. I, I really like the movie and, uh, it's also got, um, Marley Matlin. And I mean, I usually, you know, if you have a movie about, uh, <laughs> deaf characters in America, Marley Matlin's going to play one of them. Um, but, uh, uh, she's a national treasure. I love Marley Matlin and she's, uh, great as the, as the mom here. Yeah, no, the cast all around, I thought was great. All right. So well, should we move on? Yeah, yeah, you've got the you have the con for a while here. Okay, great. Uh, so the next film that I want to talk about is Crypto Zoo, which is an animated fantasy that is set in the 1960s and follows and kind of centers around a sanctuary for mythical creatures. But it's not just the sanctuary; they're also kind of envisioning it as like a Disney-ish theme park slash zoo. And part of the idea is that because these are mythical creatures that are kind of out of sight and that people are scared of that this is going to bring the mainstream acceptance and all that. So it kind of centers around. So that's the idea, the central idea that it focuses around. And then it actually turns out to be somewhat action-packed because a lot of the plot revolves around trying to chase down this one particular creature that is in danger. 
And the first thing I want to say about it is just that the animation is so striking and unusual and gorgeous. I think it really prioritizes looking um, unusual and bold uh, and creative over being kind of traditionally beautiful and neat and tidy. So I really, I really felt like if, if nothing else, this is a really good film to watch just for the way it looks, because it doesn't look that much like other things I've seen before. Um, that said, I think the themes and the story could have been worked a little bit better, but I still think it's worthwhile because it's just, it's just a world that was fun to get lost in. All right. Oh, and then I guess I have the next film as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, so the next film that I want to talk about is The Dog Who Wouldn't Be Quiet, which is an Argentinian movie that just kind of follows this guy over the course of a few years. And it, um, during during that stretch of time that we follow him, he does at one point have to deal with a pandemic. So that feels, you know, kind of relevant. There's a couple of those that yes, will come up. Yeah. I, I'm not sure, but I think that this one was another one that was made before the pandemic and not okay. as a response to it. I could be wrong about that, but I, I believe that's the case. Either way, it mostly ends up being a story about kind of uh, human resilience because you just it's it, when you're watching it at first, it just seems like a bunch of like random scenes and it's not really clear how they're all connected other than they all start this guy. But then you eventually start to get a portrait of who he is and he's someone who is a caretaker and a listener and someone who's really resilient. Uh, and I feel like I feel like just kind of following that through, you you get to know a lot about, I don't know what it means, what it takes to survive in, in a world that is not always the kindest. <laughs> Uh, I guess speaking of survival, uh, and, uh, next up for me is another horror film, a werewolf movie called eight for silver. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it, it takes place. Uh, I, I think it takes place in France, but the characters are Irish. It's not entirely clear about uh, where it takes place, but it takes place in the late 1800s, uh, in which, uh, some settlers want to live, want some land. There's a bunch of Roma living on that land. So they, uh, massacre them. And before the last, uh, Roma woman is killed, she puts a curse on the land. And of course that curse, uh, manifests itself in the form of a werewolf. And so, uh, this, the settlement is, uh, attacked by a werewolf and then you know eventually multiple werewolves as people get bit and turned in, into werewolves uh themselves and uh for the most part it's a very it's like a classical sort of throwback werewolf movie you've got you know it's a period movie like most werewolf movies you know uh, late 1800s you've got the um the character who's the 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 seasoned werewolf hunter who knows what's really going on and not only does you know to catch does he have to catch the werewolf he also has to convince the townspeople that werewolves are real and <laughs> this is something they should be afraid of uh it's 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 uh it's well made um for the most part it does have a little bit i i think because the werewolf itself is cgi and the movie is not hugely budgeted it does unfortunately have like a climactic scene that is shot with like blurry shaky cam and i honestly think they did, did that to like save money on cgi like we can't see the werewolf too much uh, or it'll cost us too much which it's it's a bummer but um uh this movie also developed um and mostly shot before the pandemic but it does treat lycanthropy i guess as a virus you've got characters of uh, or uh, shots of a character a pathologist like studying the werewolf virus and meanwhile there's a cholera pandemic going on and it's like why are you studying this weird thing you've got all these people dying of a pandemic uh back in the city it's uh, uh an another example of that sort of uh coming up uh, as it does, does in multiple films 
Oh my gosh. I feel like there's so many pandemic things that I'm like, were there always this many? Yeah, I know. Right? More, like, I'm like, I don't know. Uh, yeah. But we'll talk more about that later because there are still others to get to. So I believe I have the next one. Yes. Uh, yeah. All right. So flea is an animated documentary about an Afghan refugee escaping Afghanistan and finding his way to, uh, I think it was yeah Denmark where he, and the, and it's based on a, it's based on a true story. It's based on the story of a high school friend of the filmmakers. So it's just, so a lot of it is just kind of, um, it's, it's got narration by this guy. I believe it's just re- recorded from an inter- interview with him. And then, um, the director uses animation to mostly animation. There's some um, snippets of actual live action footage to illustrate this story. And it's a really, it's, it's a really um, wrenching story, obviously. I mean, it's, it's kind of horrifying what he goes through and it's really sad, but it's also got like a lot of moments of like beauty and grace. There's one moment that was very, there's one really like cathartic, happy moment that kind of took me by surprise. And I found myself crying at that point. Um, I believe they're going to be doing an English dub with um, mm. the guy, in, um, Jamie from Game of Thrones. I'm sorry. I for, I blinked on his name and Riz Ahmed. Uh, so yes. So I'm curious to see how it'll play when they um, change the, uh, change the dub, but yeah, yeah I, this I thought one it was... has been acquired as well. Yes, uh, by, by Neon, Neon, I believe, yeah. which seems like the perfect home. I think it. I think oh, it's but... a really interesting one that people will like when they see later this year. Uh, well, here's one they won't have to wait until later this year for. In fact, by the time you're hearing this, it's, I think it's already out. Uh, I mean, you and I both saw Rodney Asher's A Glitch in the Matrix, uh, yep. and I, I will start with the. Caveat, I mean, listeners know, but in case you don't know, uh, Rodney Asher is a longtime friend of Battleship Retention uh, and, a, and a repeat guest on this podcast. So uh, I'd have to say that first, because the next thing I'm going to say is that I love this movie, just like I love all of his movies. I named The Nightmare my favorite film of 2015. I Clearly, this guy, uh, uh, this guy, our, our friend Rodney, uh, really uh, speaks to me. Uh, Angie, do you want to uh, say what the movie's about? Yes, it's a documentary about simulation theory, uh, which is basically the, you know, what you see in the Matrix, the idea that the world is not real, but is a computer simulation. It's an idea that's become that was kind of that's been around for a long time, but it was kind of fringe and then started to pick up steam sometime in the last like, I don't know, few years or the last couple of decades or so and definitely got a boost of awareness from the Matrix. Hence why it's called that. Um, but a lot of it focuses a lot more on um, on a, a, a speech that Philip K. Dick made where he really just outlined his his ideas about the fact that he does not think that we are living in a real reality. To be honest, I like this less than you did. I thought that it touched upon a lot of interesting ideas. And I really liked like when they talk when they brought in talking heads to talk about all the different things that all the different things around this theory not just what it is and if it's true but like what it means why people are so invested in it why it matters like you know the ethical implications of it the social implications of it so on and so forth but it spends a lot of time on these talking heads that are just we don't get to know anything about them we don't actually even know who they look like because they have these like little animated avatars instead of uh, us getting to see their real faces we don't learn their names or what they do for a living or anything like that uh, and it spends a lot of time just talking on the, uh, to these people who are very focused on this theory and very obsessed with it. And I was not so sure about those parts. I mean, it's like some of it was kind of interesting and it is, and I do think it's valuable to get the insight of ordinary people who are just very invested in the theory to kind of see what, how they think, but it spent a lot of time 
sending me down rabbit holes where some guy would be like, and that I thought, I thought of a fish. And then I turned the corner. I saw a sign. There was a fish on it. <laughs> so simulation theory is real. Right. And I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know. This is a little bit. That's a, a very bit... early example. I feel like the, I feel like the movie does make a better case for simulation theory than you're giving it credit for. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think part of it might also just be, if you're someone who finds this theory more interesting than I do, I mean, if I guess full disclosure, like I don't know if we're living in a simulation and I don't care that much, to be honest. So maybe if you are more invested in that concept, then you'll find it more interesting. It wasn't quite for me. Uh, I think I, I like you mentioned the ethical implications. I feel like the, the some of the strongest stuff in the movie is when it really gets um in a, in a way that won't be surprising to uh, Rodney Asher's fans, it gets pretty dark um, uh, uh, in, in exploring the, the moral implications of uh, feeling that you don't live in reality. Um, yes, somewhat. But then one problem that I kept kind of hitting upon was that a lot of it is not so much about simulation theory as all the other things underlying simulation theory, like why it is so important to these people. And in a lot of cases, it seems like it's kind of a stand in for um, religion, for example, or like uh, something, something that is sort of a more of a symptom of a mental illness uh, deal that they're dealing with mm -hmm. rather than um, something about the theory itself. And that was what I wish the documentary had dug a little bit mm -hmm. more into rather than just giving me examples of why these random people think that it's real. Um, and then the other thing I liked, uh, like I mentioned, I love the nightmare. Uh, did you see the nightmare, Angie? No. Um, I, if you scare easily, I wouldn't recommend it. I literally, I mean, obviously, horror is subjective but i think it might be like the scariest movie i've ever seen in my life um but it's a documentary and i think that's what i, I like that rodney does is that he takes okay you're in the, night, the nightmare he's interviewing people about nightmares right so the reenactments are going to take the form of like little horror movies uh and here you've got a similar thing where the the sort of examples he gives he uses like minecraft or google earth like instead of like uh uh showing you like real things he creates another fake reality or shows you another uh, a simulation of reality uh, to illustrate the things that people are talking about. I like that sort of form following function type of uh, filmmaking. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, I think you're up again. Oh my gosh. I'm going to be up so many times. Yeah. Cause tonight. you watched a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. Now I'm, I'm going to pivot to something completely different. I'm going to talk about homeroom, which is a documentary about the Oakland high school class of 2020. And well, what that means is they started filming this in fall of 2019 when it just kind of seemed like it was going to be a normal year. And then, uh, you know, pretty far into the film coronavirus happens and the pandemic happens and then like the protests over the summer like those start to factor in more uh and it's focused on a small circle of students mostly who are kind of student leaders and one in particular and i found this to be i found this to be really interesting it's um i've seen a few different documentaries about different kid activists and i feel like there have been varying degrees of successful i feel like this one really works because it's um I feel like I feel like this one really works, first of all, because the leads that they chose are very charismatic and just interesting, but also because I think it does a really good job of uh, taking them really seriously, but not without losing sight of the fact that they're kids. And and, and there's even a great scene in the middle where it kind of just reminds you how it sounds when adults aren't really quite taking kids seriously. So they just kind of like they have a meeting with the mayor who when they're they're excited because they think it's going to be an important conversation that they're going to have about getting police out of schools. And instead, she just condescends them with a whole like 
keep it up kids you guys are doing so great <laughs> like claim your power and just like right that is what it sounds like when we as adults sometimes forget to take kids seriously even though they have serious concerns and i feel like he does such a good job of giving a voice to these to these uh teenagers and um you know telling us what their priorities are and reminding us why that's important so i enjoyed this one um and then now yeah. i'm up again you. oh my god oh my god okay you did it to um, yourself yes next time next year now i know i'm gonna watch like three movies and make you do all the work <laughs> so how it ends is another movie that's not quite about the pandemic but kind of is so it's about um it stars zoe lister jones as this woman who uh well everyone in her world knows that the world is going to end that night so it's about how she spent her last day she spends her last day with a physical manifestation of her younger self and they just kind of wander all over la uh kind of trying to tie up loose ends by which you know like so you know having a final conversation with her dad that she has kind of a rocky relationship with or telling off an ex-boyfriend that she's resented for years or trying to reconnect with another ex-boyfriend that she still is in love with and stuff like that uh, and it, you could tell it was shot during the pandemic because LA looks like weirdly empty, and because every and, and because every time they stumble upon someone, they keep finding reasons why none of these people are close together. Like in one, there's like Fred Armisen pops up, and he's just in the balcony, and they're on the street. So there's all sorts of like weird signs oh, wow. like that. Um, but after, but like after, despite all that, to me, it didn't feel like it really got at anything all that interesting or meaningful about what it is like to live at what feels like the end of the world. Um, it mostly just becomes an excuse for her to just kind of wander around LA and for the filmmakers to show us that they know lots of comedians in LA because hmm. so many of them pop up for like just one-off cameos, just to have a conversation with the lead characters. And then that's kind of it. And it moves on. And it, it's got, it's like trying toward the end to do some messaging about like, loving yourself and why that's important or whatever. But I felt like it, it was focused so much more on just like, look, and then another wacky ca cameo from another co comedy star that you like that it never quite managed to get at what it was grasping for. Uh, all right. Next up for me is I was a simple man directed by Christopher Makoto Yogi. Um, this is uh, a film that uh, very clearly takes a lot of inspiration from one of my favorite films of the past decade um, of sort of the previous decade. Um, because it's more than 10 years old now, Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. Um, this is another movie about a older old man who is dying. And the closer he gets to death, the more he starts to sort of commune with the ghosts of his past, his, uh, uh, people who were no longer there. While meanwhile, the people who are there are taking care of him, like his, his nephew, um, but his uh, his one son lives on the mainland and won't even they're estranged. He won't even come, even come visit him as he's as he's dying. But as the movie goes on, it becomes less and less about the modern, you know, the modern Hawaii and becomes more about him. You could call them flashbacks, but he also sort of starts to be like living within them. So he's like traveling in his own memories um, of his his early romance and courtship um, to uh, his wife who died very young and she is played in flashbacks and as kind of a ghost in the present day by Constance Wu. Um, and uh, uh, we, we learned that she, she died the day of the parade celebrating Hawaiian statehood. And it, so it sort of becomes clear like, okay, this is a metaphor that this this man who's dying now he represents the last generation of hawaiians to have grown up in hawaii pre-statehood um 
and and uh, that legacy sort of uh, uh, disappearing and and the movie wrestling with um with uh, hawaiian-ness and what it means you know um at this point you know 60 something years uh is that right 60 62 years since uh statehood i can't remember now um it's 59 so that would be yeah 61 years since statehood yes okay um yeah it's uh um i guess one if you didn't like if you don't like very slow meditative dreamy movies like uncle blue me you might find this one a little slow but uh it was right up my alley and who's next i can't get this stupid uh oh I we're both up next we're both up but why don't you go first okay this is uh, speaking of like how it ends this is a movie that was conceived of shot and finished completely since the pandemic started this has been wheatley's in the earth um and uh it uh it's about a scientist who has just come out of a months-long quarantine of some sort there's still some sort of pandemic going on uh in its but it's it seems to be in its like last late stages uh things are maybe uh getting a he's he's a lot out of quarantine but he's uh going off to find his uh, was it his former a uh, colleague or a former mentor i can't remember uh he who, is going who she is to, to him she is kind of like his, someone he used to work with and i think also his ex okay so he's going off to find her that's right um she's disappeared into the woods on a research project months ago and so he uh this this guy played by uh joel fry um teams up with um uh, a park ranger played by i forget her name but um she's in midsummer um she's one of the british she's the british woman in midsummer um no spoilers for what happens to her <laughs> but uh, uh so they team up and, and go off into into the woods to find uh, this woman played by Haley squires um and they find someone else in the woods and uh, it's sort of it's a bit uh a bit of uh to reference my own uh, paraphrase my own review it's a bit of blair witch and a bit of annihilation but it's also still filtered through the the ben wheatley like fucked upness but also kind of sense of humor at the same time like there's some real trippy shit there's also some real gory shit but it's also kind of darkly funny like including with the gory shit like i feel like the number of terrible things that happen to joel fry's foot become funny like in a dark way it becomes funny that his foot just keeps getting mutilated Um, i can certainly see that but as someone who is not great at that kind of gore like i just every single time i was like oh i it was like covering my face. I was like, I can't, I cannot deal with this right now. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I didn't love it, but, um, I, I liked it more, more, more than I didn't. Uh, and, um, partially because as like a, a low key metalhead, I like trippy pagan witchy shit and it gets into some of that. I thought you said you were going to talk about metal less on this podcast. What happened <laughs> to that? Yeah, the pandemic has made me just listen to all metal all the time. I haven't listened to a podcast in like a year almost. I just listen to metal all the time. <gasps> Do you know I you're cope. on a podcast? Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I think so what I'm did you think of In the you. Earth? Okay, go ahead. I think I'm kind of with you. I think that uh, Annihilation plus Blair Witch is as adept a description as any. I think the I think the central performances are good. There's a long stretch in the middle where it just kind of becomes uh, these two running from a very specific target. And I feel like, and I was, after a while, I was like, oh, after all that high concept stuff, that's all it amounts to. And it is, it is not, but it takes up a lot of it. 
And it, and I think that that part of it works really well. Like it's kind of it's scary what it needs to be. It's tense what it needs to be, whatnot. But I think that it kind of starts to lose its way once they go deeper into the force and deeper into the mystery of what it is, because the movie just kind of keeps stringing you along and being like, ah, there's something crazy is going on, but we're not going to tell you what something crazy is going on, but we're not going to tell you what. But then it gives Haley, it gives Haley Squires this, all these long reams of like, gobbledygook like just like pseudoscience like so i filtered the whatever through the whatever and it's like it felt like watching a bad episode of like a cw like supernatural teen drama you know (laughs) uh yeah it, it definitely has a problem there and I feel like it just like, I feel like in the end, it kind of, it doesn't necessarily like all the drawn out, like, ah, oh, oh, what could it mean? Like, it doesn't really, it isn't really merited by what it finally reveals toward the end. Uh, I mean, and, and, you know, not that every movie needs to have a really clean, neat, tidy ending, but I feel like the structure of the movie kind of made me feel like we were building to some explanation that was going to make things make sense. And then I was like, oh, oh, okay. That said, the performance is really good. Joel Fry is so fun and so good at screaming about how much his foot hurts. And I would love to see him in more stuff. He's someone, he's an actor I've kind of seen around, but I, I think this is the first time I've seen him in a lead role that I was like, oh, yeah. this guy more stuff to do. So, uh, and it is also just a very beautiful movie to look at. Like just, yeah. So yeah. Um, kind of mixed the positive on it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it also commits one of the horror movies. And this is, uh, I, if I could grab every horror movie by the horror movie character by the shoulders and say, look, if you're held captive and you get the drop on your captor, make sure he's fucking dead. <laughs> right. She, yeah. Like she has the opportunity to like cave the guy's skull in and she's just like, okay, I knocked him out. Let's get out of here. Of course he's going to turn around and he's going to catch up. You know, do you remember uh, a movie you and I saw at Sundance together actually that uh, I mostly liked, but drove me crazy with this Berlin syndrome in which uh, yes. uh, a man, uh, uh, a Berlin man uh, holds a, an Australian woman ca- captive for months at a time. And at one point she like gets a screwdriver and she like puts it through his hand and tries to get away. And I'm like, you had the screwdriver go for the neck or the eye or something. This is your I one mean, chance. Yes. I will say that. I feel like in the, like none of us know how we react in that actual moment. There's a I'm good telling you that, that I just- know. No, you don't. Everyone thinks they know, but nobody Oh, come on. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, wait, now, now it sounds like I'm threatening your life yeah. like on a podcast. So, no, let, just, just in case anyone is listening, any authorities are listening, I am not. We are not ever going to find out what David's life is like, how David reacts when his life is threatened, because I would never do that to him. <laughs> Thank God. Anyway, so that was a good way to end that discussion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're up next again. What, what, what am I up for? Oh, in the, in same, the breath. same breath. Yes. Uh, so this is a documentary about the coronavirus. So this one was okay. made knowing what the coronavirus is. It is, it takes at this point, I think there was, there's been several documentaries about the coronavirus, but I appreciated this one because it had a really unique perspective that seems like it could really only have come from this person because it is directed by Nanfu Wong, who was, I believe she was like at Sundance last year when all this stuff was going on, but she had actually just come from China because she is from China. She grew up there. Her family still lives there. So she she had visited them and then she came back to the U S and because she has lived in both China and the U S it kind of gave her a really unique perspective in terms of comparing how China responded to the virus versus America. And a lot of her documentary focuses on how the government prioritized its own power and its own perception of power Oh, and, you know, over the well-being of its of its people, 
And, um, you know, in terms of it, to the point of trying to suppress early reports about the pandemic, but then it moves on to the U S and it, and it, and she kind of picks up on a lot of the echoes of why, of why the U S response was, was also kind of disastrous and how it's not that different in some ways from the reasons why the, uh, initial response to China was disastrous. She talks to a lot of people who were affected by, the coronavirus, you know, both in China and here, like people like survivors or nurses or people like that. And it's just, it's really, really wrenching. And I I think the portrait she ultimately paints of what happens when a government prioritizes itself and its own power and its own vanity and ego over giving a shit what happens to any of the people who actually live in it is really, really damning. Um, You said Nanfu Wong was at Sundance last year. What with, with what movie last year? Was last year One Child Nation? I think she, I think it was yes. last year. Yeah, that sounds right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, next up for me is a movie called John and the Hole. And um, like with I'm if I like sorry like with I was a simple man. If you're coming to movies looking for plot and things to happen and progress and resolve themselves, John and the Hole is not what is not for you <laughs> this is a movie that has mostly just a premise and then just hangs out in that premise uh charlie shotwell plays a uh, rich kid who is i mean it's not my place to diagnose people but uh i'm gonna say he's sociopathic in some in some ways uh he's out uh flying the drone the expensive drone that his uh his father uh put at michael c hall um uh, bought him when he uh, finds an unfinished bunker that's basically just a big concrete hole in the ground. And uh, he has a great idea, which is that he will drug his family and then drag them one by one out to the hole and dump them in the hole. His family is played by Michael C. Hall. His mother is Jennifer Eel and his sister is Taisa Farm- Farmiga. Um, Farmiga? It's Farmiga, right? I think so. I don't know. Um, and so, yeah, that, uh, once he gets them out into the hole, it, there, there's not much that happens other than it's, it's kind of like a twisted version of like a home alone, like child wish fulfillment. He just like orders a new TV with his dad's credit card and like makes a bunch of ice cream and stuff. Uh, and every once in a while he tosses some food or water down the hole, but really it's the movie is just a series of scenes hanging out in the like tension of how fucked up is this kid? <laughs> like, is our, is this family going to die down there? Is he going to kill the people who come by to check on, to find out, you know, is he going to kill his mom's friend or his friend or whatever? Like, it's basically just the, the movie's only like 90 minutes long. And it's basically the, 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 the last hour of it is mostly just hanging out in this like weird tension of this bizarre, uh, uh, kid who doesn't see, who seems interested in how the world works, but, surprisingly unaware of how the world works for someone his age. Charlie Shaw was great uh, in the movie. Um, I really liked it. It's another, like in the earth, you could, you could squint and call it a dark comedy, but it's mostly okay. just very uncomfortable. Um, but uh, yeah, I liked it. All right. Now we're on to one that we both saw. And that is a uh, big premiere, big late premiere uh, at, at Sundance. That's Shaka King's Judas and the Black Messiah, which is coming uh, to, I guess, I guess it's a, it's a Warner Brothers thing. So it's coming to HBO Max. It is coming to theaters and HBO Max. Yes. But don't go to theaters. The same day. Uh, no. 
don't go to theaters. <laughs> um, uh, what did you think of Judas and the Black Messiah? I really liked it. Um, I think she, or I think he doesn't, I think the um, Shaka King does a really interesting job of, well, I guess I should actually back up and say what it's about. So this is a drama where Daniel Kaluuya plays Fred Hampton and Lakeith Stanfield plays Bill O'Neill, who is the FBI informant who infiltrated the Black Panthers with the, um, with the goal of delivering information about Fred Hampton to the FBI who saw Fred Hampton as a big threat because they were like, oh, if a, if a black messiah should emerge, that would be a great threat to the American way of life, by which, of course, right. they mean like the white uh, middle class yeah. American way of life. Uh, so it's a movie that kind of just follows. So it's a movie that follows that. And through uh, Bill's eyes, you kind of see what Fred is doing, like what the work that he's doing, the coalition he's building, the change that he can make, like how powerful he is in terms of his vision and his ability to inspire other people and do good in his community and his leadership abilities. So you get to see all that. And then you also get to see why Bill does what he does. And it's really, it's really pretty heartbreaking. I think that one thing I, one thing I give this movie a lot of credit for is that I feel like, especially like Bill's story is really challenging because what you're just primed not to like him from the start. I mean, he is the Judas of the title. Like you don't go and be like that guy, probably a champ, probably makes all the good decisions, probably the hero of the story. And he's not, um, and you don't come away necessarily be like, yes, what he did was good and you know, whatever. But I feel like, I feel like the film does a really good job of understanding why he does what he does without kind of excusing it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and in general, I think that this film has like so much room for the humanity of its characters, which is really which is which I really liked because I feel like in a lot of historical dramas that kind of sometimes gets lost in like the film trying to remind you of like these are very important people and very important events. So I, I really appreciated that with uh, Fred in particular. A lot of that comes out in his romance with another Black Panther, Deborah Johnson, played by Dominic Fishback, who is just I mean, the other actors, I knew who they were, so I knew to expect great things from them. But she's also just phenomenal, phenomenal in this. Uh, so, yeah, you get to you get a you get a sense of why this is such a big, important story without it being one without the film losing sight of their humanity. Yeah, uh, Dominic Fishback is great, um, familiar to fans of uh, David Simon's recent TV work because she was on The Deuce and she was on Show Me a, Show Me a Hero. Um I love, I, I was surprised by how much I loved this movie because it kind of felt like as a kid from the nineties, it felt like a throwback to like nineties star driven prestige, like movies that are still thrillers. Like I feel like we have, we, we've had a lot of talk in the 21st century about like the death of the movie star, that movie stars don't, um, don't, don't sell uh, tickets or movies aren't made around stars anymore. But this is a movie that uh, loves its three stars, Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith uh, uh, Stanfield, and Dominic Fishback. And to some extent, Jesse Plemons. It doesn't love J. Edgar Hoover. It puts Martin Sheen in, like, <laughs> just horror makeup. He looks <laughs> he looks like a Dick Tracy villain or some sort of, like, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a really terrifying makeup. Um, but for the most part, I felt like it, the movie kind of reminded me of something like Donnie Brasco. Um, uh, you, you know, a, a true story, but a star vehicle. Um, and it is the movie uh, of all the things that I saw at Sundance, the movie that most made me miss seeing a movie just on a huge screen because uh, it really uses a lot of close-ups, um, uh, in in a way that, uh, again, underscores that it's treating these 
these actors, these young black actors as movie stars that, that uh, Daniel Kluya is filling the Johnny Depp role or, you know, uh, or I guess in Donnie Brasco terms, Lakeith Stanfield will be the Johnny Depp. Um, uh, Daniel Kluya gets to make the big speeches. He's uh, like Kevin Costner, JFK. He gets big, lots of big, big moments. And there's all these, these, these close-ups. And uh, I really loved uh, uh, the filmmaking. I was I was only really aware of the story because of Stanley Nelson's documentary six years ago, uh, Vanguard of the Revolution about the Black Panthers. Really a uh, good uh, documentary. Um, and so I was kind of interested to see it, but I really wasn't uh, expecting to love this movie as as much as I did as a uh, throwback to a kind of uh, serious uh, adult-minded, uh, um, you know just north of mid-budget uh, Hollywood movie. I really, really liked it. Yeah, me too. Okay. Uh, all right. Next up to a, a movie much smaller in scope, but the directorial debut of the actor Robin Wright, uh, or sorry, I should say the feature film directorial debut. She's done like hella House of Cards episodes, apparently. I'd, I'd never watched House of Cards, but... Um, uh, this is her first uh, feature. She also stars in it, uh, in which she plays uh, a woman. There's okay. There's something in the air lately with like Nomadland, and then I don't know if you saw Supernova, but like uh, um, people like characters who are not quite elderly, but just not, like on the other side of middle age you know, giving it all up and hitting the road or going out. Like it seems to be something in the air uh, lately. And land is, is another movie uh, like that. Robin Wright. We don't know. We eventually find out why, but because of some sort of thing that's happened in her life, she's decided to sell everything, drop everything and move to a cabin in the Wyoming mountains. Uh, she is not very well equipped to living alone in the mountains. She doesn't seem to care very much at the beginning. Uh, you almost get the impression that maybe this is, not about self-help or therapy. Maybe this is just a drawn out suicide attempt on her, on her point, her part. But, uh, over time, she eventually makes friends with, I guess you'd say a neighbor. He lives miles away because it's in the middle of the mountains, but, uh, Damien Bashir who comes by and befriends her and teaches her how to hunt and how to live, uh, in, in the mountains and, and to be corny about it, teaches her how to, trust people and love life again, but, uh, I'm making it sound corny. And there are some things uh, early on that I think are a bit corny, but once it settles in to the mountain setting and to, uh, Robin Wright's, uh, typically great performance. I'm always, I've always been a Robin Wright fan. Uh, it's a, it's a really solid movie. Great. I'm realizing we still have a lot of movies to get through, so I'm going to try to be quick. Okay. All right. So we're, let's talk about Life in a Day 2020. So about 10 years ago, there was uh, the original Life in a Day, which call, called for people like uh, just amateurs, random people to just call it uh, to uh, send in clips about what they were doing on a particular day in 2010. I guess it would have been at the time. Um, and then, you know, the, they just put to, they cut all that together to just make a documentary about like the just the vast, the vast broadness of, um, of the vast variety of human experience around the globe and at, at any given moment. And they did that again for 2020. Uh, and I think the, the date they picked was, I believe, July 25th, 2020 or somewhere, somewhere around there. I know it's July something. And uh, yeah, so it's the same premise. And um, I think that the, I, I, I mean, the original, I saw it 10 years ago. I thought it was fine. I didn't really remember it. I didn't even remember I'd seen it until I started watching this one. 
This one, I think one of the problems, one of the reasons it didn't really work for me is, first of all, 10 years ago, the idea of like random people sending in like short little clips about what they did that day. Like that was kind of like, oh, that's crazy. How else would you ever see something like that? Now it's just like you open Twitter, you open TikTok, you open Instagram. That is all you see. It is not that exciting to see what uh, normal people are kind of doing. And I don't think that this movie really kind of deals with that. But also one of the things, one of the other things is, I mean, like, July 25th, 2020, that was a that was a time when there was a lot of stuff going on, even just in the US. There was, you know, obviously the pandemic was a big deal. Obviously, there were protests going on and then around the world there were other things happening, too. And the problem with this kind of thing is that because it just kind of splices together these clips without any real commentary or uh, plot, it just kind of has a way of flattening all these things that happen. Some of those are really some of which are really minor, some of which are really big into this sort of kind of bland, like we're all connected kind of messaging. Like it kind of reminded me of those commercials that we used to get early in the pandemic where it would be like, here's random clips of people doing nothing because we're all in it together. And it just kind of felt like that. So it just really didn't work for me. I did not see the point of this documentary. All right. I never saw the original life in a day, but I do remember that it was also July of 2010 because it was uh, Comic-Con. The, oh, was <laughs> there a lot were, of footage of Comic-Con? I never, I never, I never saw it, but I, I think... If yeah, why am I asking you? I've seen it, but I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the day. Maybe I'm conflating things in my mind, but it might have been the same day that that dude got stabbed in the face with a pencil in Hall H. <laughs> that might oh have been my. the same day as Life Life in a Day, but I never saw it, so I don't know if that's in there. Uh, okay. All right, next up for me is uh, uh, a documentary that didn't. Uh, it's it's a enjoyable enough watch, but it it, it left a bad taste in my mouth, and that's uh, Sam Hopkinson's Misha and the Wolves. Uh, it's about a woman who. Um, wrote an autobiography about her life uh, as a child, the Holocaust survivor and hiding out in the woods and being befriended by a pack of wolves. Uh, except the movie has twists and turns and reveals and stuff, but it felt kind of, do you remember? And most people like this documentary. I'm in the minority, uh, but almost 10 years ago, there's a documentary called searching for sugar man. And I, I, I never liked searching for sugar man because it felt kind of disingenuous. And I think it's just to me, maybe when I'm watching a documentary, I like the feeling that I'm discovering the things along with the filmmaker. Whereas if I'm watching a documentary where film, if it was like the filmmaker has lined up all the dominoes beforehand and, uh, is here you go, um, watch them fall. That feels like eh, maybe that could have been a fiction movie or that could have been a newspaper article. I feel like that's not what I come to documentaries for. And so there's something a little bit, like I said, a bad taste about Misha and the wolves. Let's move on. Cause like you said, we've got plenty, plenty more to talk about. Okay. Passing is the directorial debut of Rebecca Hall whom you have seen as an actor in many things. And it is also an adaptation of the book by Nella Larson. It is set in the, I think the 1920s or the 1930s. And it revolves around two childhood friends played by Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega, who are both black women, but light skinned enough to pass for white. And then they uh, reconnect as adults and are sort of drawn to each other for reasons that I don't think either of them are really great at kind of understanding or articulating. Um, I found this to be really interesting. It, it's shot in black and white, so it has a very kind of old-timey feel to it, but in a way where it doesn't feel like it's just outdated. It's also, The performances in this are really good, which is really no surprise considering who the actresses are at the center. Um, and I think that she does... A, I think the, with a lot of literary adaptations, I feel like the problem is that it feels like literary adaptation. It just feels like it's like, you know, over-explaining or quoting too many passages from the book and stuff like that. I feel like Hall does a really great job of making this feel like a cinematic experience. 
Uh, I mean, she so much of it is just her capturing like little moments where no one is really talking, but you can just kind of tell from the way that they're looking at each other or kind of relating to the space around them, how they feel. So I found that to be I found it to be really, a really rich and interesting exploration of identity and particularly kind of the boxes that we put around stuff like race and gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, am I next up? Am yep. I next up to? Oh, I am. All right. The Pink Cloud. Okay. So this one is one of the movies that is about a pandemic, but was actually written in 2017 and shot in 2019. And the filmmaker said that as they were making the movie, that's like, as they were editing the movie, that's when the, um, pandemic really became a thing. And they were just like, oh, well, shit. Now we're, <laughs> we're keeping reminded of scenes from our own movie. And given that it was made before the pandemic, it is actually crazy how well it seems to understand a lot about life in a pandemic. So it centers around um, this couple. They were kind of a one night stand, but then the, the morning after a pink cloud descends upon the earth and it's completely toxic. So everyone just has to go inside and quarantine for an indefinite amount of time, which in this case turns out actually to be years and years. And it very much is about like kind of the hopelessness of that. But one of the things I kind of, I I feel like the fact that it now kind of relates to real life must be a mixed bag for the filmmakers, because on the one hand, it makes it seem more relevant. But on the other hand, it's, I think that probably when they conceived it, they were like, oh, pink cloud, it's going to be a great metaphor. And now it doesn't feel like a metaphor. It feels very <laughs> literal. So I feel like that must be kind of a mind trip for the filmmakers. But yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a really thoughtful exploration in addition to what it's like to just live in quarantine of like relationships and gender roles and parenthood and 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 also despair and hopelessness. So it's yeah, I found this one to be really interesting. Uh, all right. Uh, El Planeta is a Spanish film and it's definitely the best, uh, comedy that I saw at Sundance this year. It's, uh, um, another like passing. It's another black and white film uh, about two women. Uh, this one is a mother and daughter. The daughter, uh, has recently moved back to, uh, uh, in with her mother in their tiny apartment in Gijon, Spain, which is the seventh largest city in Spain. I had to look that up, um, from, from London. And, uh, essentially because her father, her mother's husband, uh, passed away, but really you get the impression she was like out of money and her career wasn't going anywhere in, in London. And so now you've got these, these two, uh, uh women who were, financially just skating by, but are trying to live, trying to maintain a sort of, uh, uh, bourgeois upper middle-class appearance of life. Um, and, uh, uh, their, their priorities often make, uh, for, for comedy, um, and, and their, and their ways of, of, uh, 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 getting by uh, are often very funny. I, I uh, really liked it. Uh, it's it's very funny. Directed by Amalia Ullman, who stars as uh, who stars and uh, her mother is played by her actual mother, Ale uh, Ullman. Uh, yeah, really really good movie. And then next up, Pleasure is I guess technically it's a Swedish movie, but it takes place entirely in Los Angeles, um, and it's uh, about a young uh, Swedish woman who comes to Los Angeles to make it as a porn star. And um, this is uh, I don't know if you I feel like maybe because the movies were screened at home in people's living rooms, there were a lot of like warnings at least for like that I saw for like the following movie contains like uh, extreme gore or strobe effects or things like that. I saw maybe it was just because I watched so many horror movies, but pleasure they actually made me put in my birth date before they let me watch the screener because oh, wow. uh, it's very explicit. Um, at times it's very explicit, but also I feel like, uh, I, I don't know. This is a weird soapbox of mine. Why? Like, it's very 
we see naked women in movies all the time. We rarely see penises in movies. We almost never, ever, ever see erect penises in movies. And this movie being about porn is full of erect penises. And I feel like that's what made people go like, Oh, Oh my God. Erect penis. <laughs> like so, 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 something about a penis, uh, uh becoming, uh, engorged suddenly makes it just like too scandalous for, for people to, to handle. But, um, anyway, so this is a movie that is definitely, um, not, a huge fan of the porn industry, but also is subjective enough that we like, we find ourselves, I think kind of like wanting her to succeed because she wants to succeed. Even at the same time, we're seeing how, um, uh, the, the industry, despite having the appearance of, um, kind of like I talked about with all, all light everywhere, uh, the way that the, the, the body worn cameras end up doing more, uh, potentially do more to protect the police than to serve the community. We see how the, the safety nets and the protocols and the legal uh, stuff are really about protecting the men who have a financial stake in the porn industry from liability than they are actually protecting um, the, the young women who, who are potentially uh, in a a vulnerable uh, uh, place. But um, it's kind of a, I guess it's kind of a um, very explicit um, coming of age movie uh, of sorts. And like many coming of age movies, especially coming of age movies about young women, uh, it's about friendship. And, uh, you know, we see her do her first scene. That's like the opening, uh, of the movie. And then the director, the male director, like tells her like, don't trust these other, you know, these other bitches or whatever in the porn industry. These are the actresses. Um, but she almost immediately becomes great friends with her, uh, um, Florida, uh, girl roommate, uh, fellow porn star. And, um, they have a, uh, terrific uh, rapport. The, the movie's, uh, the movie's very good, but, um, yeah, I guess if you're scared of erect penises, be careful. Good warning for us all. Um, all right. Next up is a movie we both saw, but I just talked. So you talk first. No, I don't want to. Okay. Uh, well, Sion Sono's Prisoners of the Ghost Land. Um, and this is the uh this is a Nicolas Cage vehicle in um in many of the ways that, that has come to imply in our uh post memified uh ironic appreciation of Nicolas Cage uh world, which is it's too bad that people will see it through that filter because I actually think it's a wonderfully fun and, uh, cinematic and inventive and unapologetic, uh, good time at the movies. I think that you were right, but I have to be honest. I, this was, I think either the last or one of the very last movies that I saw. And by that point I was just so run ragged that I, my attention span was just shot to hell. So I apologize. Well, that's this, this, movie, movie. this movie is not like taxing though. Like it gives you some new candy colored thing to look at every three seconds. It, it, no, you're right. So I wasn't like bored, but I just found my attention wandering. And so I apologize to this movie. I did not give you your full due. That said, I mean, you know, Nicolas Cage is fun in it. But what, what I enjoyed most was just like the kind of world that is being built out and just the, the look of it. Like like you said, every every few minutes, there's just something new to like marvel at. And the, new, the world is kind of the, like this Western samurai Mad Max 
universe is that do you think that that's a, yeah i mean literally the, the, description? the the home base of the action is a small like western type town except it's modern but it's like a it's like a dressed up as a western town but it's called samurai town yes uh yeah so it's it's got all that going on and the story kind of the the story is very simple it just basically revolves around nick cage being hired by this like corrupt leader well, to Sorry, not hired. He's let out of prison. It belongs to that very specific yes, subgenre of movies. Is, Prisoner a, left out to go to go on a suicide in prison, and then yeah. is freed by this man so that he can go and 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 retrieve his daughter who has disappeared into the ghost land, which is just like a the Mad Max wasteland. Basically, it reminded me a bit of like, did you ever see the Bad Batch? That, no, I never um, did. It, it kind of has that. It just kind of has that like very weird, very distinctive universe building mm. to it and that kind of like wastelandy feel um but i think also like that it it's a it's a little bit it's a little bit thin like visually i think this movie is really fun to look at i feel like you know in terms of like the emotions or the plot or whatever it's just like yeah it's fine it's mostly there so that it, it it's a fun excuse to shuttle between all like the crazy costumes and the crazy sets and like whatever crazy action is happening at any given time yeah it's another one that gets gets fairly uh violent um uh, sometimes very beautifully there's a uh a slow-mo like samurai sword fight scene set to time in a bottle by jim croce that um was there very sure very very lovely um i also like uh, this just the, the uh, kind of thing that i notice uh, again like i said with jo judas and the black messiah like my a part of me was like raised on nineties movies. And that was before the advent or especially before the popularization of digital intermediate when movies were color timed, which they are now like movies are color timed to within an inch of their life. You know, this part of the screen is the, the frame is this color in this part. Uh, and this had, this has kind of like an old timey, uh, uh, old timey by which I mean the nineties, not the 1890s, the 1990s. Um, <laughs> the way that like the movie's very colorful because there are, like practically physically a lot of colorful lights and colorful production design going on. Mm -hmm, it's not mm -hmm. like, you know, turned orange and blue, like, uh, like so many movies are in, in the post-production process. Um, all right. What's, what's next? Uh, probably uh, you. A, oh my God. It is the, me. Now is, this is the movie that I've been waiting to hear you talk about because it sounded like, it, based on the Sundance description and people who listened uh, two weeks ago to me and Tyler doing our Sundance preview, it sounded like the worst movie in the world. <laughs> it is not the worst movie in the world, but okay. So I don't know how to pronounce the title of this movie. It is spelled R hashtag J, but that can't possibly be how it's pronounced because that makes no fucking sense. It's not how um, hashtags I, work. No, it's not how hashtags work. Based on the movie, I think on what I saw the movie, I think that it, it, it seems like it would make more sense if it was like R and then like a heart emoji J, but for some reason they decided that to go with the hashtag instead. So the, the pitch is really simple. It's Romeo and Juliet, but played out in the modern age over social media. Um, so you see, you spend a lot of time just watching these character screens and on their screens, they like when they text or leave each other Instagram comments or whatever, they speak in like regular modern language like including a lot of slang but then when the characters are talking to each other they all use mostly shakespearean language which is kind of a, an odd choice it is something that at the beginning i was it was it was a movie that i was like this could be like amazing or it could be terrible uh it is not the worst movie I've ever made but i'm gonna lean toward terrible in the beginning <laughs> i thought it was interesting because 
you know, you, you, you start by kind of seeing the profile, like the social media profiles of Romeo and Juliet. And it's just like, oh, okay. Like this movie has a good handle on like what kind of guy he would be in this day and age and what kind of, and what kind of um, character they're creating with her. And like, cause I feel like, I do feel like, you know, these days you get a lot of a sense of what people are like initially by just looking at their social media, but the social media thing, while I do not think it is impossible to make a really moving and interesting movie about social media. And while I have actually seen it done lots of times before, this is not it. It starts to feel, I think, it starts to feel really superficial. And I think one of the reasons is because it never quite sells the romance, the central romance, the thing that is very important in Romeo and Juliet <laughs> as um, much more than just like two teens that kind of enjoy taking cute selfies together. I mean, you don't have to believe that Romeo and Juliet's romance is a good idea, but you have to believe that they're so into each other that they would go to any lengths to, you know, keep each other. And you just don't get that sense here. And then, and then, so then at the end, toward the end, as the drama gets more and more heightened, it just starts to make less and less sense and the 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 um the acting is also just like frankly not always that good and then it builds toward an ending that makes some significant changes to the basic plot of Romeo and Juliet in a way that I do not think it quite works. All right. Uh take a deep breath because you've still got like five in a row right now. No, I thought you were doing Rebel Hearts. Is that not you? Uh n- no, and that's also not on this list. Oh, I guess I just accidentally wrote that down. All right. Okay, so I'm still going, huh? Yep. So searchers for a while. Next? Yeah. Yep. Okay, yeah. This is why I made you talk first during Prisoner of the Ghost because I knew I had this chunk coming up where I have right. to talk for like an hour. Okay, so searchers is a documentary that is about searching for love on dating apps and sites in New York City, and the way that it, it's done is just the filmmaker went and. Uh, like it would, it would be like basically like close up of you where you are looking at a screen and looking at the Tinder profile or something and just kind of talking about it. And like, uh, you know, and some of it is just, is just like someone looking at footage of like someone looking at pictures and being like, Oh, swipe, right, swipe left, whatever. Some, sometimes the documentarian will ask some questions about like, what are you looking for? Like what's important to you? And you get some interesting answers out of that. But it, it really is just a document a documentary that is mostly just watching people use Tinder or Match or whatever their website of choice is. And in that regard, I mean, I think that maybe if this is a topic you find kind of inherently interesting, I, it, it's kind of fun. I did appreciate that he got a really wide variety of subjects, like of all different ages, of all different sexualities and genders and races and classes. So I appreciated that. But it. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, again, it's just a documentary about people using, about just watching people go through their dating websites. So to me, that wasn't quite enough to make it more than just kind of a pleasant, short diversion. All right. So that was Searchers. Now we're going to move on to Strawberry Mansion. Okay. Is that right? Oh, let me look. Searchers, by the way, I was interested in, I never saw Manakamana, the documentary, but that's uh, the same director. Uh, so if you liked Manakamana, which is supposed to be good, that's who made Searchers. But yeah, Strawberry Mansion is next. Okay. Uh, oh, how do I even explain this? Strawberry Mansion is set in a sort of weird, technically set in the future, but it looks very retro. And it's a dystopia um it's a dystopian future and it follows a dream auditor whose job it is to audit people's dreams so that he can collect taxes on them. And he is assigned to go through the dreams of this uh, very elderly lady who lives in um, this like remote mansion. And then as he's kind of going through her dreams, he gets more and more sucked into them and kind of into this uh, relationship he has with her and her also her this version of her that appears in these dreams and whatnot. 
And I, this was another one where I was like, this could be insufferable or it could be amazing. I thought it was amazing. It seemed like it was going to be a little too, like, I think one of the things that kind of turned me off about it initially when I was kind of looking, considering watching it was that it seemed like it was going to be very twee and it is somewhat, but I feel like it's aesthetic. It's like very retro handmade, like DIY aesthetic really works for it because what it's really trying to be a movie about is about like, (laughs) I think what it gets at is how sad it is that we live in a society where everything is sort of, you know, uh, thought of in terms of like, how can we monetize this? How can this be something that is like productive to other people? And this is a movie that really is about trying to be original and creative and uh, create art and love for the sake of those things and not toward the end of making money off of it or selling it to someone or something like that. So it, 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 turned out to be really quite touching. It feels very kind of, it's got a little bit of like that Terry Gilliam-ish feel, but I think the, um, the, I think the feeling, the overall vibe is very like Michelle Gondry's science of sleep. Like it had that kind of dreamlike surreal quality to it. So I really like this one a lot. I think it was one of my favorites of the festival. Okay. Right. And now I'm going to keep talking because I have so many streaking. How we got to Sesame street is as you can probably guess from the title, a documentary about Sesame street and specifically about the beginnings of Sesame street. Like the first, um, I think like 10 to 20 years of it. Uh, and it's, I mean, look, if you like Sesame street, you're going to find stuff to like about this documentary. There's it's fun to watch, you know, like Frank Oz and Jim Henson, just kind of like goof around on set, especially when they're like in characters or puppets. And like, you know, it's fun to, it's fun to go behind the scenes and look at that and to revisit old clips. And it's Sesame street is obviously something that was really important to a lot of people and did a lot of good for a lot of people. So it's also really touching to hear about how that was important and all that, but it is, but I think what I what kind of so I liked it but I think what kept me from really loving it is that it also feels very surface level like it doesn't really dig that deep into any one thing uh a lot of the stuff that comes up here seems like it could be a whole movie or a whole episode on its own like the relationship between Frank Oz and Jim Henson and um and it also it seems like it kind of is sort of dancing around some of the stuff that is not so completely positive and not, not that I think Sesame Street has like sordid secrets that it's hiding, but just, you know, for example, there's like a, uh, like it kind of touches upon one black actor and his experience of the way that the show treated race and that it just sort of brings it up and then it kind of just moves on because it doesn't really want to go into that deeper. So I would have appreciated a fuller picture. It kind of seems like this would be better as like a docuseries or something, but Oh, well. So, yeah, I mean, it's fun. It's going to be on HBO, which is also going to have all these Sesame Street episodes. So afterwards, you'll be like, I wish I could watch some classic Sesame Street. And then HBO will be like, have we got something for you? (laughs) All right. And then um, these days, speaking of shows, these days is actually not a movie, but the pilot episode of an indie TV series. I don't know if there are other episodes that already exist or if they're just hoping to make them. But I thought that this was a really good start. So it is a show about this it is it's set in i'm not i don't remember offhand exactly when but sometime in the early days of the pandemic so maybe like spring or summer 2020 and it's very much steeped in that it's like uh you get all the i know it's weird to call it like period details but it does feel like that in a way where you're like all right when we used to like bang on the the pots and pans like at a certain time that used to be a thing people talked about like and she's going on zoom dates with these she's you know she's she's single so she's going on zoom dates and trying to trying to find love um and her first one is disastrous but her second one is with william jackson harper from the good place and he is very charming and they connect really well and you're like this is so cute i wonder where it's going and then uh, the episode ends because it is just the first episode <laughs> and i want more people to be into it because i would like to see where this goes you got amy brenneman 
And uh, yeah. the star, Marion Rendon, uh, played Sadie Atkins in Charlie Says. I don't know if you saw Charlie Says. Uh, I did not. One of the many uh, uh, pieces of Charles Manson uh, pop culture that pa- popped up over the past couple of years. Good movie. All right. All right. Sounds very different from this one. Um, yeah. okay. So I, I just, t- I like to say something in between in case you need to like take a breather or have a drink of water. <laughs> I appreciate not just talking into the void. So thank you. Uh, the <laughs> next movie I'm going to talk about is together together, which stars Ed Helms. And I think her name is Patty Harrison, right? Um, oh, I didn't open and- that up. So I don't know. <laughs> so she is a woman in her twenties and he is a man in his 40s and the way that they meet is that she is uh agrees to be a pregnancy surrogate for him he he wants to be a single dad um and it's about these two people who are just kind of lonely and form a sort of friendship it's very much a movie it's structured almost like a romantic comedy with like the you know they meet initially and it's kind of awkward but then they like sort of develop this unexpected relationship uh but one of the things one of the things that makes that kind of sets apart is that it's very much about a friendship to the point where they actually have an extended conversation in the movie about like ah you know woody allen movies how it's always about like older men and younger women and how she's going to change his life so it's it's very pointedly trying to not that it's a movie that i found to be kind of like low-key charming without ever quite transcending that mode uh like you know it's something that i can imagine just kind of like popping on because it's on netflix and be like that that was cute but like not being particularly but it's like not something that's gonna stick in my head or anything that said i mean the lead actress is great i would like to see her more things and of course at helms we all know and like and he's good in this too yeah and her name is patty harrison Okay, good. I'm glad I got her name right. And oh, finally, uh, the last one for me in this stretch, we, we're we all going to the World's and Fair. I think this is the last one for you, period. It is. Uh, we're all going to the World's Fair is, uh, this is one of the few movies, uh, this and In the Earth, I guess, are one of the few movies I saw that kind of are sort of categorized as horror. You were saying you saw a lot of horror movies, but I really didn't. And this is a movie about a teenage girl named Casey who um, gets sucked into this sort of like creepy pasta online legend-y thing about uh, like a game called a world, we're all going to the world's fair where, fair where if you say it three times in a certain way and then you like perform a certain ritual, then your your body will start to transform. Like she watches videos of like people being like, oh, after I did it, like my body started turning to plastic and like stuff like that. Um, and then while she's, and then, so then she does the ritual and while she's waiting for something to happen, someone reaches out to her and starts like talking to her. Uh, about what he sees in her videos and it sounds and i feel like the way that even the way that that's described makes it sound like it's a little bit different from what it is because what it really ends up being is a movie that's about it's it does a better job than any almost any other movie i've seen of capturing sort of the both the intense loneliness and the um of, of, of this girl who is searching for some kind of connection online like she's clearly like very isolated and very sad and um but also like the possibility for connection that the internet provides in ways that are both exciting or can be comforting, but can also be like a little bit dangerous. Like, so I I think it does a really good job of kind of capturing those two sides of the internet and kind of um, taking seriously this relationship that is formed between these characters without trying too hard to make it be one thing or the other. Um, yeah, this one I thought was really interesting. It's his directorial debut, and it, it and I think the actress is also kind of an unknown. So, yeah, that sounds amazing. I would say of, of of the many things you have talked about today that I didn't see, that's the one that's most enticing to me. That sounds. I, really I don't cool. know if you personally will like it, but I really liked it, and I hope that if you ever see it, you will too. 
Uh, all right. The final movie for me is a movie called Wild Indian, um, directed by Lyle Mitchell Corbine Jr. Uh, this is a movie that takes place in sort of, it has two halves. The first half is uh, mid-1980s on um, a reservation in Wisconsin and where, where the kid uh, named Makwa is uh, sort of a outcast loner he's bullied at school he's abused by uh his stepfather at home he has a pretty pretty shitty life he has one friend uh uh named teto who uh occasionally likes to sneak his dad's rifle out of the closet and they go out into the woods to shoot bottles and uh wouldn't you know on one of these excursions something terrible happens uh that um give gives makwa and teto a shared secret that they continue to share when the movie jumps to 2019, uh, uh, 35 years uh, later, um, Macwa and Teto still, neither of them have revealed their secret, but they're also not really talking to each other. And then something happens that kind of brings them back together and brings them face to face with, uh, with their, uh, their secret. Um, that's enough plot, uh, description, but, um, uh yeah the the movie's uh, uh some heavy stuff and a lot of it seems to feel like very allegorical in terms of it, it seems like it's a parable about cycles of dehumanization be it uh you know colonization um or or uh, parental abuse or other forms of of dehumanizing people and how those are revisited uh on on other people uh down the line great uh the adult maqua is played by an actor who i never heard of i had never heard of named michael gray eyes he's really good um the adult uh i never know how to say his name but the adult um teto is also an actor i like his name is it's like Chase Chesky Spencer or something. He, he was apparently in some of the twilight movies. I never saw any of the twilight movies, but he's also in a movie called winter in the blood, which is a really good movie. Um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Kate Bosworth also show up to play the, uh, uh, the white people in this movie. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So that's wild Indian. Uh, it was really good. Really like of the 15 movies I saw Misha and the wolves was the only one that I didn't really like. And even that one, I would have to admit a lot of people are going to find it enjoyable and it's in a, like a human interest uh, story type of way. So I would say this was a successful Sundance for the most part. There were no big, like, you know, I didn't leave like last year there was like Minari and you know, a movie that is echoing a year later, you know, still uh, racking up awards and stuff. I don't know. <coughs> I don't know that there's anything that I saw at Sundance this year that, uh, that we're going to be talking about um come award season next january but uh that's not the same as saying these weren't great movies well one reason is because they extended how award season works so something like judas and the black messiah which conceivably could have played sundance this year and then been part of the awards conversation next year is now part of the awards conversation this year that's super weird yeah yeah that's true um uh, uh, yeah. Speaking of the, uh, another weird thing, uh, about this delayed w- award season is that, um, cause you've also been to TIFF in the past. Uh, there are movies that are like front runners for awards that I saw at TIFF 2019. It will have been like a year and a half, more than a year and a half between like when I first saw sound of metal and when, uh, Paul Racy and Everly wins best supporting actor <laughs> at the Oscars oh, gosh, <laughs> in, yeah. in April. Um, uh, there's a number of things like uh, I know Bakurao is uh, a foreign language film that's getting a lot of attention. That feels like, again, I saw it a year and a half ago. It's weird to to 
to think about that. Anyway, I understand why they extended award season for the Oscars, but I feel like in retrospect, it seems like very arbitrary because it seems like that decision was made under the assumption that we would all be out from under this a lot faster. Yeah. That we'd be going to see Judas and the black Messiah or whatever in a movie theater. Yeah. Yes. And yet, yeah. And yeah, that's not what happened. Um, no. Uh, what uh, the United States versus Billy holiday ended up getting sold to Hulu and is rearing on Hulu. Uh, um, but that was obviously like a, uh, meant to be like a theatrical awards, uh, contender. It still is, but, uh, it was supposed to be a theatrical release. Anyway, we've gone on too long, Angel. We've talked about all of Sundance. <laughs> we talked about, a, we, t- we counted beforehand and we've talked about a little bit less than half of Sundance. Okay. Um, all the important ones were covered, I think by us. Um, sure. So, all right. You can find us. You can find reviews of all 15 movies that I talked about today. Uh, currently up at battleshippotential.com. Um, hopefully, by the time you're hearing this, there are some more reviews. Sometimes it's pushed me back on getting my actual reviews up. But hopefully, there are reviews of Malcolm and Marie and Little Fish and The Reckoning uh, up by the time you're hearing this. But I can't make any promises because I am behind this behind schedule on my reviews. But those are all battleshippotential.com. You can email me at david at battleshippotential.com. Oh, that reminds me. If you'll uh, Angie, if you'll indulge me, um, listeners, my wife and I are starting a podcast. I'm not going to say what it is, but if you are someone who is a listener uh, of this show and thinks you might be able to help out with something like a logo or uh, theme music or something like that, uh, and you would want to help out, please reach out to me, David, uh, 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 David, at Um, we can talk about, uh, what we need and what do you need? All right. So, uh, thank you for indulging me in that, uh, very selfish plug. Um, let's see, you can email Tyler at Tyler battleship com, but he didn't see any Sundance movies. So don't bother him. Um, you can follow <laughs> me on Twitter at Davey pretension, follow Tyler, at Tyler pretension, Angie, where can people find you? Should you want them to? You can find me at on Twitter at AJHAN. You can find my work, including reviews of some, not all, of the movies that I talked about at Mashable.com. And you can also hear me roughly once a month on KPCC's Film Week. Well, thank you so much for... Uh, uh, it, I feel like Sundance actually happened now because I got to talk to Angie about movies. Yes, I mean, usually such a big part of the Sundance experience for me is running into you between screenings, even when we didn't see the same movie and just kind of catching up and, and drinking that very precise one ounce of liquor that they're allowed to give you at <laughs> yeah. the bar that we usually meet at. Uh, and yep. we didn't get that this year, but now nope. at least we can do this. Well, hopefully next year in Park City. Hopefully. Thank you again for being here. Thank Thank you you for having me. Uh, Anytime, literally. Um, Thank you at home for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.